Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord and those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. And those of you also joining us online, thank you. Those of you who have sent in notes of encouragement, they are very well received and I've been getting them over the last few months and uh, thank you for them. And those of you who have not sent them in (laughs) after service... (laughs) This morning we have a topical message, and if you have your Bibles, please open to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 44. Isaiah, chapter 44. The title of this morning's message is, My Sins. And our text is found in the 22nd verse, Isaiah 44, verse 22. We'll give a little bit extra time to find the verse for some of you. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's word? I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins return to me, for I have redeemed you. Please be seated. Some of us are sure about our Salvation, being forgiven by Christ for our sin and sins. Still, a fresh look may prove inspirational. We all need to be inspired from time to time. And hopefully, such inspirations will help purge, if not continue to block out doubts that involve our faith and our life. And doubts, incidentally, they, they can invite depression. And so faith is a very excellent tool in combating uh, such a dark cloud in our thinking and our moods. I think of the patriarch Jacob when he was old, having suffered so many hardships, in fact, suffering enough hardships that he found his faith to be quite sluggish. When he was told by his sons that Joseph was alive, he was reluctant to believe them, again, because he had suffered so many things over the years. I'm interested in what God did about that. How did God handle that? God was very gentle with Jacob, and he met him right there where the doubts were. We pick that part up in Genesis 45, verse 26. And they told him that his son's telling Jacob, saying, Joseph is alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. When he saw the wagons, he heard what they were saying, and he saw the wagons, and his faith revived. There was a surge of belief that welled up inside of the man, and we're very mindful of that because this was the work of God. Uh, I want my faith to surge forward all the time. I cannot do that. I cannot always flame, but I can always burn hot. And that is one of the goals of the believer. And I hope this morning from this consideration in Isaiah that there will be a surge within our faith that will be useful not only to us and those around us, but also to the Lord. And so again, here in our text, which is again Isaiah 44, verse 22, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. What the prophet has been doing in chapter 42, where he begins this new section, he introduces the Messiah, behold my servant, and he is talking about again the the Messiah, our Christ. And then he begins to talk to them in the next chapter about how God is special and he is exclusive and there's no one like him. And then he also brings up now in this 44th chapter that while God is so much 
the God of love for his people, many of his people are following the wrong things. They are bringing idols into their lives. And so in this 44th chapter, as we know it, there is this contrast, the advantage of the Hebrew over the pagans. And I want to hear about that coming from God because I'm not a pagan. I once was a pagan, but now I am a believer. And our faith, the, the believer's faith, as with the Jews that he was addressing in Isaiah's day, our faith originates with the Creator. The others, the, those who follow something else, anything else, their faith originates with humans. Satan, of course, doing the influencing. Outwardly, there may be little difference. You may look at a believer, and you may look at a non-believer, and you, may, you don't often always notice one is this or one is that. But, to the eye of God, they are as different as a lily is from a thorn. And that's what I'm very interested in. How does God see me? What does God see when he looks at me? I hope he does not see what I see. I hope he does not see what you see. I hope he sees Jesus Christ in me, the light of the world, the perfect one. I hope he sees one that is reconciled to him, that has peace with him. And God points this out, as mentioned throughout this chapter. Look with me at verse 20. And if you uh, have turned to Isaiah, you might want to keep it there. I hope to make a few references to it. In verse 20, God says this about those who worship man-made gods. He says, he feeds on ashes and uh, deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? It's quite profound. Isaiah gets into how they take a block of wood and a portion of it they use to cook with, and a portion they do this, and another portion they make their God. And uh, to, to Isaiah, as it should be to us, this was ridiculous. As when we hear what people believe uh, that they've just made up in the world, we, sh we shake our heads. We say, this is crazy. It makes no sense. Oh, no matter who is saying it, just because a person puts a lab coat on doesn't mean they're right about God. Uh, it doesn't mean they're wrong either. It depends on what they're saying. And if they said we, we sort of just have evolved from this or that, um, I think it's madness. I, I think because you can just trace it back until you find that it is flawed. Well, I don't want to take up the time talking about the folly of evolution of the species, but I do want to talk about that 20th verse here in Isaiah 44. God says he feeds on ashes. It's worthless. It's spent. There's nothing in it. There's no spiritual nutrition. A deceived heart has turned him aside. Paul said they've been blinded by the God of this age. We know this to be true. And when we pray for lost souls, we pray that they would receive their sight, that they would see Jesus as the Christ, whom he has revealed himself to be. He continues in verse 20. He cannot deliver his soul. The idol cannot deliver him, and he cannot deliver himself. And this is part of the gospel message that we tell people in the world. You cannot save yourself, ever. It's not possible. You must have a savior. He says here in verse 20, nor say, that person cannot say, there is not a lie in my right hand. In other words, they cannot realize that they're clinging to things that are worthless. Not only are they worthless, they will damn their soul. They're dangerous. They're toxic. Versus, having said that about the unbeliever, the pagan, verse 1, as we have it, Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant and Israel, whom I have chosen. What a stark contrast. One feeds on ashes and has a deceived heart. The other is referred to as a servant, one whom he has chosen, selected by God. And this is very significant for me. How does God choose me? By offering me the gospel and awaiting my reply, my response. And when I respond to the gospel and I receive Christ, he is my Lord. This is basic Christianity, and it never gets old. It never becomes a tiring thing to hear for those of us who believe. Why is that? One reason is we despise our sin, our personal sin. I hate my sin. 
I'll miss none of it when I'm out of here. But for now, I've got to deal with it and the sins of others also. One feeds on ashes, the ashes of humans designing their own God, and the other receiving God and becoming his servant, useful to him. That is what a servant is supposed to be. The prophet continues to draw these contrasts, and we who believe should be able to draw these contrasts too from the scripture to those who are in the world who have a deceived heart. And that's how we become saved. At some point, the contrast was made, and we were given a choice, and we made the choice for Jesus. In verse 10 of Isaiah 44, the prophet says, Who would form a God or mold an image that profits nothing? So God is speaking now. The, I, the prophet is just the vehicle, the vessel. He, and God says, Who does this? Who makes up their own God in, 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 in their image, actually? He's going to say that. Verse 13 of Isaiah 44. And makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. So there are, you know, the, the, the psalmist said, those who make their gods are like them, because man cannot imagine something outside of himself. That's why God reveals to us. He does not wait for us to make up things about him. He tells us about him. And then we're supposed to be off and running with that. But that 13th verse, is it not so profound? Do we not see it carried, around, carried out so often around us? They make it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man. Well, there are beautiful things about human beings. Human beings can do quite a few impressive things, but next to God, no, they cannot. And he says that they, it may remain in the house. What use is it there? I need God to be with me wherever I go. And so the paganism that he is exposing to his Jewish people, he is saying this to his people, you're taking gods into your house, fake gods, made-up gods, and you're mixing them with Jehovah. You're worshiping Yahweh, and then you're worshiping them at the same time. And, and this is, of course, unacceptable to God. Your worship is rejected. And Isaiah spends a great portion of his prophecy dealing with the, this, this very thing, as did the other prophets. Paganism insists on seeing the self-made God according to their own image. But faith, faith walks by trust in the truths that have been revealed. Because those truths are powerful enough to fill in blanks that nothing else can do. They are unique in that way. And this presence of the Holy Spirit that we have given to us from the day of Pentecost is given to us so that we can explain it to others, that we can carry our faith to others. And Satan, of course, opposes this and tries to stifle us. And so there we have who would form a God or mold an image that profits nothing according to the beauty of man versus, now look at 24, verse 24 in Isaiah 44, thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, he who formed you from the womb, I am Yahweh, who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. God says, I am it. I am the true God. There is no other. There's no room for any other. There's no need for any other. This is something fundamental to our faith. And if a person claims to be a Christian, but also claims that there are other sources of salvation or other sources for life, then we have to object to that very strongly. The self-existent, uncreated God who creates. That is our God. But he says again, looking at verse 24, He who formed you from the womb. It is actually beyond the womb. And at the end of this chapter, he's going to reference the Medo-King, Medo-Persian King Cyrus. A hundred years before he was born... God names him and tells us what his role is going to be in the interest of God's people for God. That man was already, to God, he was already in existence. And so when we say life starts at conception, we really mean the conception of God. Not just a physical conception. 
I'll come back to that when, we, when I quote Jeremiah. So the doctrine of salvation runs throughout our text this morning, which is verse 22. I've blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, your sins. It's very personal. When I read that, in my own time by myself, I know God is talking to me. I don't read those words and say, well, he's talking to the Jews. Well, he was, but he's talking to me. He singles me out. He isolates me. He separates me from everything going around me and says, I'm talking to you. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and they are many. And it is a continuous process, or it would profit me nothing. What good would it be if God forgave me one time? Because I'm not going to sin one time, and neither are you. I am a sinner by nature. I am going to sin until I am am in heaven. And so the doctrine of salvation runs through this verse. It goes beyond Isaiah's immediate context. This is a beautiful thing about the Bible, is that there's a context here. He's speaking to his people, as I've laid out in verses 43 and 42 and 44. But it also breaks loose from the context of Isaiah and continues into the New Testament gospel message. It is carried on. That's why the New Testament writers quoted the Old Testament and applied them to Christians. The Christian faith is, of course, rooted in the Old Testament. And when we read these things in the ancient in the Old Testament, we're reading about mostly God and his people, the Jews, because the church was not born yet. The Gentiles were not yet brought in. But when Jesus comes along and says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, He's saying God so loved not just the elect, not just the Jew, but everybody. And because of that love, he has come to redeem all who would receive it, to buy us back. Because man was sold into slavery, into the wrong kingdom there in the Garden of Eden. And so the doctrine uh, is in this verse. It goes beyond the context of Isaiah because it is encapsulated in the context of the New Testament. And Jesus distinguishes between those who make up their gods and those who receive the maker. And they're irreconcilable. That's why you must be born again. Within Christ is our most prized possession of all. What is My most prized possession of all. Forgiveness of my sin by God. God, Because if he doesn't do that, I have no hope. There's, There's nothing to live for. I'm doomed. I perish. But if he can forgive my sins, and he has, it means everything to me. Now, the second point. All who come to Christ receive complete forgiveness. It's not a half-done deal. Well, I've forgiven you for this one, but not for that one. But if he's forgiven me, if it's complete, why is that? Why do I have a... There's nothing about me that would make God love me, because he's already announced to me that I break his law by calling me a sinner. This gives me much hope. Because if there's nothing about me that can cause God to love me, and he loves me nonetheless then so long as I'm in Christ, there's really not anything I can do to stop him from loving me. I get inspired by that. Revelation 1, verse 5, let's go to God's word about this and not just take commentary on it. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the ruler over the kings of the earth, there is his sovereignty, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood might sound disgusting to an unbeliever. So did circumcision sound disgusting to many of the non-Jews. Hadrian, one of the Caesars, despised the Jews, that Jewish practice. But to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood, that's why my forgiveness is complete. Not only is he sovereign, strong enough to do it, but he loves me. So again, not by man's authority do we make this claim, but by God's message to man. Also because God puts my sins out of sight. Whose sight? My sight. His sight, of course. But my sight, too. And the sight of others. Something that we seem reluctant to do to one another, is it not? 
How quick are we to judge other people, to belittle them, even if nothing else in our heart? How many times do we get satisfaction of feeling superior to someone else? We have no grounds for this. That's not consistent with love. That's consistent with meanness. But God puts away my sins out of sight. Psalm 32, blessed is the man to whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity. That man who God says, I am not going to charge you with that sin. That man is blessed. And then he goes on. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's not a recklessness about the one that's forgiven. It doesn't say, well, I'm forgiven, so I'm free to sin again. He's not careless about his sin. It despises his sin. And the scripture says, God is on top of this. He understands this. He loves you. And he is going to deal with this sin because the record of our sin is gone. When we get to heaven, there will be no record of our sin. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 17. This is King Hezekiah, who was supposed to, he got sick and he was not supposed to recover. In fact, the prophet Isaiah said, you're going to die. And Hezekiah turned to the Lord. He looked at the wall and he, he wept and he cried out to God. And God, when Isaiah had reached the courtyard, spoke to him and said, Isaiah, go back and tell Hezekiah he will live. And Hezekiah celebrated this decision and, and wrote these words down. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. I had to go through this process, he says. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. Okay, that's one part. He's delivered from his sin, I mean, from his sickness. But he says, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. You don't see them when they're cast behind your back. That's the picture. And God is not willing to turn around and look at them. Micah the prophet, speaking to an Israel that largely, again, was practicing idolatry. And Micah writes, He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. What? Assurance is in that. You will do this because God is telling the prophet he's going to do this. Maybe that's why I love the sea. It is a wonderful place to hide evidence. Just throw it into the deep and let it go away. I like to read that verse again. He will again have compassion on us because God has had, he's had to deal with their sin and he has, he has dealt with their sin. But the prophet says there's hope for the sinner. He will subdue our iniquities. When I am in heaven, my iniquities will be gone. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And then Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as east is from west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Try not to put a hook on them and drag them back. Unnecessary guilt on yourself or others. Dragging and dredging their guilt up as though God has not dealt with it. Verse, well, before I go to the next verse. Continuing with, all who come to Jesus Christ receive completeness of sin because God has chosen to pardon, to forgive my sins. He has chosen to do this. Jeremiah the prophet. Again, speaking of the restoration of Israel. But these things apply to us. And I'm going to bring that out in a very real way from Hebrews in a moment. Jeremiah 50, verse 20. In those days and in that time, says Yahweh, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found. For I will pardon those whom I preserve. You won't be able... Look, I'm not lost because of Jesus Christ. The record of my sins, that is what is lost. It can't be found in heaven. He's thrown it away. He's pardoned me. And for those belonging to Jesus Christ, a day is coming when your sins will not be remembered. Right now, they're remembered by us. I remember my sins, not all of them. I'm not even aware of all of them. There's a difference. There are those sins, those transgressions, that are born out of revolt against God through my flesh. 
And then there are those sins that I'm not even aware of that are still sins. They're wrong. And I need to be forgiven from those too. Again to Jeremiah, this time Jeremiah 31, verse 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No Yahweh, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You see the hope that the prophets, when they came with their message of thunder, of judgment, they always brought hope. And so are we. When we are used by God to point out this is a sin, but there's a way back to God. There's a way to deal with this sin. It does not have to stay on you. Now, this verse from Jeremiah, the writer of Hebrews, quotes it twice and applies it to New Testament believers. Twice for emphasis. They are in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews chapter 10. In its historical context, as Jeremiah used it, it applied to Israel. But in its New Testament eternal context, it applies to me, to my sin. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God does not say that belongs to Israel, not to the church. God says that belongs to my people, whoever comes to me. Because to God there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There are believers of Jesus Christ. That's what matters. I mean, ethnic, ethnically there are, but that's not what counts with God. Again, when God sees us, he sees the lily, not the thorn. He sees the blossom, the life, the fruit, not the sin. This forgiveness that we have is recurrent. Notice again our text, Isaiah 44, verse 22. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions... And like a cloud, your sins return to me, for I have redeemed you. He does not say, I will blot out. He says, I have blotted out. The transgression, again, that Hebrew word is revolt, rebellion against God. It is intentional. And yet, it can be dealt with. He does not say, I will redeem you. What he says here is, I have redeemed you. Sin is an offense. It is a wrong done to God. When you are offended, when I am offended, our feelings are also hurt. We are bothered. Sometimes we are bothered to anger. Sometimes we are bothered to sadness. Either way, our feelings are hurt. That is what sin does to God. It is against him. It is a wrong done. And yet, he knows how to handle it. If you do not know how to handle toxic or dangerous things, you can be injured severely. God knows how to handle all things. Forgiveness from my sin is a continuous process, and I don't care how long you have been a Christian, you need to have that repeated to you from time to time. Lest your, your faith become reluctant and sluggish, as I talked about Jacob in the beginning. Hebrews ten fourteen. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, those who are being developed in Christ. That would be us. We are set aside and then we are developed into the image of Christ. And the writer to Hebrew is telling them that if you go to the temple, they have to offer sacrifices every day to expose the conscience, to cover the sin but not remove it. But in Christ, Christ comes and the sin is removed continuously. Only one offering. He does not have to die in the morning and then again in the evening every day as the Jewish sacrifices were offered. He is the Lamb of God, was sacrificed one time on Calvary and not again. Colossians 3.3, 3, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the water baptism. It speaks of the water baptism speaks of this very thing. You died, your old nature, your old beliefs. And your life is hidden with Christ. And so when the person is taken into the water, it symbolizes their death and burial. And then when they come out of the water, it symbolizes the resurrected, the, the new them. The one who is now cleansed, died, and the life is hidden with Christ. And so when God again looks at us, does not see the thorn. He sees the lily. 
However, and there's always a however, because that's what war hands us, spiritual war. No one's sin can be forgiven without Christ. We all understand this who are born again. We love this. It, it locks everything down. We're not guessing about how it works. We know how it works. We're told how it works. And then we respond to it. As I mentioned earlier, the prophet said, listen, look at the pagans. Look at those who do not have Yahweh as God. They feed on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul. Fundamentals. Nor can he even admit that what he is clinging to in his right hand is wrong. It is flawed. Christ did not suffer and die for men to save themselves. How cruel would that have been of God the Father? Well, son, I want you to go and to suffer humiliation, despising the shame, to suffer a violent death on a cross. Uh, there are other ways to be saved, but I, I want you to do this way too so that we cover all of our bases. That is not the gospel. That is not the truth. Our sins, and they are many, still allow Christ to touch us, and we touch him. Christ allows himself to be touched by sinners who have many sins. Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 39. This is the story of the woman who was weeping over the feet of Christ, uh, kissing his feet, washing his feet, just in total adoration towards him. She was a sinner with many sins. The Bible makes that clear to us. And she was so aware of the love and the forgiveness in the presence of Christ. And he was aware of her, of course. And he allowed her to touch him, to be touched. And nothing has changed in all these centuries. We who have many sins, we come to Christ and he allows us to touch him, to weep before him. And so the story, I'll take verse 39 and 47 from Luke 7. Now, when the Pharisee, Simon by name this time, who had invited him, saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Of course he knew. Jesus knew from the beginning. He also knew that Simon was a sinner. And then it says, when Jesus said, Simon, I've got something to say against you. And Simon says, say on, Master. And, and, and here's what we read. Therefore, Christ speaking, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Any of you here loveless? Anyone here not very loving to their spouse, not very loving to some anyone else, maybe you don't realize how you've been forgiven. Maybe you don't understand the bullet you dodged by coming to Christ. Maybe you've got a little homework to do to be like Christ. He's willing to work with you. You can touch him anytime. You do not have to wait for Christ to show up at the house of Simon the Pharisee. All you have to do is call out to him. To be forgiven, we must admit that we are sinners, that we are violators, that we are trespassers. Even we Christians who have been forgiven of our sins, from time to time we have to say to someone else, I was wrong. I'm not getting it right. I'm working on it. I want to get it right. So long as I blame others for my shortcomings, I will always be less than what the touch of God can make me. So long as I'm blaming mom and dad, and I'm talking to adults also, not just the youth here. So long as I'm blaming parents or children or the pastor or someone else, I'm not going to become what God can make me because I'm not dealing with myself. I'm taking up the role as Lord and, you know, uh, uh, the witch finder general. That's what I become. I am not okay with being untouched by Jesus. Not only is his forgiveness continual, but I want the touch to be sustained. And when I cannot sense his touch on my life, by faith I know it is there. And I defy myself to doubt that. 
when I feel myself, how I fight doubt and depression and disappointment and anger is I fight it. I, I, I resist it. I say, not so. I say, no way. I'm not, I know your moves. I know what you're trying to do. And I'm not going to cooperate. I'm going to revolt against my own sin. Now, I may still fail and lose my temper, for example, but I don't justify it. I would like to justify it, but I cannot in the light of Christ. So I am not okay with being untouched by him. I want his touch on my life. I am not okay with being lukewarm. I don't want to be a lukewarm Christian. I don't want to become so settled in my Christianity that I'm not growing any longer, that I'm not expanding, that I'm not being challenged. I am not okay with being mean-spirited and bitter and loveless and self-willed and a, and a host of other things that I am not okay with as a Christian. And I want God to know that. And I want God to know that I know that. And hopefully others will see that I'm not just making it easy for the devil to flow through me in my flesh. We are not forgiven so that we can betray Christ and rule our own lives and get what we want. We are forgiven, yes, to get to heaven, but to be useful on earth, too. Is there a Christian here who wants to be useless on earth? Please raise your hand, because we need to pray for you. Uh, Who would want to be useless for Christ who names him as Lord and Savior? This is what the prophet Isaiah was saying to Israel. You have the God of Isaac and Jacob. Uh, Why are you behaving this way? Why are you looking to the pagans to find out how you should live? Why are you taking their statues and and bringing them into your homes and, and making shrines to these things? This is not who we are. Then we come to my next point. Jesus is my Lord. He is my Savior, and I am his servant, and I love to have it so. I have frustrations with Christ. One of my great frustrations with Christ is that he's allowed life, this kind of life, the curse. Uh, what rationale would not be happy? Well, I mean, what, is it rational to say, no, I'm fine with all of this? No, I'm not. Okay, but I can't change it. So I submit. And I find out what he's doing with it. And I get in rhythm with him. I am formed by my Lord God, not by chance, but by his very hands, by his will, by his decision. Jesus said, the hairs on your head are numbered. What kind of math does God have? where he can number the hairs on the head of every human being at the same time, all the time. Of course, the statement is made to us, Jesus is saying to us, there's nothing God does not know. There's nothing about you that is beyond his count, his care. We don't make gods. God made us. I have to repeat some of these things. The second verse of Isaiah 44, Thus says Yahweh who made you and formed you from the womb who will help you. Oh, I love that. He's going to help me. He might not change my circumstances, but he can change how I think about the circumstances. Fear not. How many times does the Bible say that? Fear not. Don't worry about this. Don't let it eat you alive. Fear is when someone is panic-stricken, they want others to be panic-stricken with them oftentimes. May it not be so. May we rather be used to strengthen them in the midst of their fear to get them away from it. We can quote all day, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind, but you still got to go out and do it. And it is a practice of life. He continues, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurim, whom I have chosen. That's a term of endearment for God's people. He takes them back to Jacob. He says, Jacob, the patriarch, from whom the 12 sons of Jacob come, the tribes of Israel. Jacob had a lot of problems. And every time God uses the name Jacob, he's saying to Israel, you really don't have anything to boast. There's nothing really special about your DNA. It is me that makes you special. It is my touch upon you, my call upon you. But you cannot look at Jacob and say, what a godly man he was. Yes, he was godly. But but he's not, in every case, a model to follow. Jeremiah chapter 1, 
Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You see what I mean? That conception. God's reach goes back to eternity past. He does not learn new things. God cannot be surprised. So when you get to heaven, don't try to hide. And when he comes walking by, jump out. Surprise! I'm sorry. I said to myself, I'm not going to be humorous. I'm going to stay focused on my word. Well, my message. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. (laughs) Jeremiah. You know what Jeremiah said about this? I wish I was never born. Ministry became that intense for the man that he wanted out. He was tired of God's people. And it's quite a powerful story. The ministry of Jeremiah. I turn to him often. I am paid for by God with divine blood. Gold and silver was not brought before uh, the he who stole us from God, Satan. We were paid for with divine blood. We were purchased, Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. When he wrote to those Ephesians, many of them by this time were Gentiles in the church. And he's, Paul is saying, you were far off. You were practicing all sorts of weird, crazy, kooky stuff. But God brought you near. Brought him near to what? To himself. Not the church. Not the other Christians. That happened too. But they were brought near to Christ because of Christ's death. Colossians 6, for you were bought. Now, this is not bringing. This is buying at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's, which belongs to God, which causes me to hate my sin because I know I've been bought. I know I've been purchased. I know I belong to him. And yet I still stumble. I still mess it up. And so I hate my sin, but I love my Savior. And I have to find a way to make it count. Repeating himself, Paul says in Corinthians You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. You see, the Jews who were bringing these statues into their houses, they were becoming slaves of men. They were surrendering themselves to the ideas of men and not to the revelation of God. And Paul says to the Christians, uh, don't do that. In Christ, we are not to be slaves to the ideas of Christless people about Christ. Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what was that mind? That he humbled himself to do the work of the Father. And he is, because of these things, not only my Lord, but it is this Lord who saves my soul. And he's done it personally. He has not delegated my salvation. Isaiah chapter 43, if you still have your Bibles open to Isaiah 44, turn one chapter back to verse 45. There God says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God is saying, I'm doing this. Me is an emphasis there. He's quite insistent. I don't need help to save you, to be your Savior. And so Peter writes, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, when when we write these words or type these words, we are typing truth. But when Peter wrote those words, he had the face of Christ in mind. He was with Jesus Christ. He saw him abused. He had another approach to it. And we, and, 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 Peter goes on to say that he noticed that Christians loved Christ whom they never saw. And he was quite impressed by that. He was saying, I have seen him. I have walked with him. You have not. And you love him just as much as me. And that is what Pentecost has done for us. The giving of the Holy Spirit. And so being forgiven is supposed to mean something, is it not? It's supposed to show up outwardly, is it not? When Christ looks at me, he's supposed to see the lily, at least the bud, and not a thorn sticking other people. 
for being too close to me, for being an irritant to me. I am his servant because of these things. Psalm 116, verse 16. Yahweh, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. Galatians 6, for now let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. That includes his heart. When Paul says, I bear on my body, he's talking inside and out. He has been afraid for Christ. He talks about this in Corinthians, the second one. He goes into how on fear of robbers on the road, a fiery indignation against sin. This was internal as well as external. And yet, Paul, his sins were blotted out and he spent his life sharing this message and upholding these words. And so my last section is, I am forgiven and never forgotten by Jesus. It is so easy to feel forgotten by God. It is so easy to blame God. This is the flesh. This is what sin has done to us. There will come a time when we we'll no longer will be this way. But right now, we have to battle these things. And we're expected to battle them. When Christ sees us fighting doubt, that's what he wants to see us doing, fighting it. And not succumbing to it and turning on others. No matter how long and difficult the journey. Verse 21 of Isaiah 44. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you and you are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. No matter how long and difficult the journey. Oh, that was just for the Jews. No, it was not just for the Jews. It was for them. It is for all who would come to Christ. Sinners can never deserve God. Never. But all sinners can accept him. All sinners can receive him. When God forgives, he does not say, you are forgiven so long as you don't fail. He does not say you are forgiven so long as you don't sin. It is easy to think that we are forgotten because of some stubborn sin or some addiction. And God says, not so. I will not forget you. You are not forgotten. I know what it's like to say to Christ, you said to me that you would never leave me or forsake me. Then why am I going through this? And by faith, I know he is there. And by faith, I get up and I continue to function as a Christian. I don't need God to say, well, let me show you that I'm here. Just the other day, something was troubling me very much. And I'm just talking to the Lord. And uh, he brought the verse up that I needed. And what was my first response? Can you confirm that? <laughs> to which, you know, across the Gideon. And to which uh, God uh, impressed upon me that he didn't need to confirm it. I needed to believe it. Because it was right. And I have. And I do. And I said, never mind. I don't don't want to. I mean, if you insist on confirming it, I won't object. (laughs) But I'm supposed to be older in my faith. I'm supposed to recognize quickly what's going on. Uh, when Paul spoke to, uh, when God spoke to Paul, he did not always confirm it. He just told him things. You, you have to go to Caesar. <laughs> you know, Paul, you're going to suffer many things. Paul, I have many people in this city. Don't be afraid. Paul didn't say, okay, can you show me again? It gets a little tricky, and we don't want to make habit of that. But don't measure the limit of your forgiveness by your failure or repeated failure. Because you're never forgotten. How often should I forgive my brother? You know, Peter wanting to impress the Lord seven times. And Jesus said, you know, your multiplication is wrong, Peter. In fact, you're doing addition. I'm doing multiplication. And God is not saying, well, that's for you, but not for me. God forgives us. And that's why we read this in Romans 2. The goodness of God leads to repentance, which is why it's so perplexing when people reject his love. The goodness of God. That's what le- when when I was forgiven as when I became a believer it was because I recognized he forgave me that he loved me in spite of all my wrong. Moses thought he was forgotten for 40 years. God shows up to him one day. Moses wasn't forgotten. Moses was preserved. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters for 
I know their sorrows. He doesn't lose sight of these things. For all eternity, those in Christ, Christ Jesus, will only have their sins forgotten, but not themselves. We are remembered. And if you stood before God in your own righteousness, then, yeah, I can understand why you would worry about his care. So don't stand before God in your own righteousness. That is a, that is a method of doom. Only Jesus Christ, I'm almost done, only Jesus Christ stands between me and my weeping and gnashing of teeth because he has taken away my sins. He offers this to everyone. And so the song of redemption is the outburst of the prophet. Look at verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. And what is said there of Israel is said of the individual believers. And Peter said, repent therefore and be converted. That your sins may be blotted out. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of Yahweh. And then I close with this verse. John, in his first letter. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Well, where did he get that? He got it from God, and he got it from God's word. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, may we never be too big to consider the great salvation that you have worked for us that will last without end. And may we do something with it yet again. May we be inspired. Lord, I lift up those believers who know they fail so much and may have become very sluggish in their faith. I lift them up and I pray that they would be revived, that there would be a surge again, that they would be inspired, that they would not give up. And should they return to the doldrums that are quick upon us sometimes, may they again remember that you've not forgotten, that you can still use them. And to those who are strong, may they become stronger still. If there's anyone here watching online, listening online, in the church building itself, and you have never opened your heart to Christ, you have a chance to open your heart to him now, to confess your sin, to be forgiven. If you say this prayer with me, as an example, if you mean it, God will receive you. It's what's in the heart that will make the difference. So you've got to mean your confession. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your laws. And I come to you to be forgiven because only you can forgive me of these things. Only you are worthy. And I ask you to be, from this day forward, not only the one who forgives my sins, but the one who is ruler over my life. And I give my life to you right here and right now. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed to make it known, to share it with one of the pastors at the end of the service when invited to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.